0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18 and if you're using the Bibles in the benches can be found on page 1628. It is our privilege and delight this morning to hear from God's holy word. Then Jesus told these disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. Uh, For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Look, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? Will He keep putting them off? I tell you, He will see that they get justice and quickly... However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men robbers and evildoers and adulterers or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. People were also bringing babies to Jesus to have him touch them, and when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them, but Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. Well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, Do not murder, Do not steal, Do not give false testimony, Honor your father and your mother. Well, all these I have kept since I was a boy, He said. Now when Jesus heard this, He said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. Now when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth, and Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, Well, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ and friends, if there were two things that we learned from Luke's Gospel last week, if there are two things we learned from Luke's Gospel last week about Jesus coming back to end the world as we know it and to bring the world into its pristine and glorified state, if there were two things that Jesus taught us about His return and the entrance of the glorified state, what were those two things? The first was that His return will be unexpected. Unexpected. And all the people in Jesus' time and all the people today can talk all they want about the supposed signs of the end of the times. And we see all of these patterns in the world that we have never seen before. And we somehow discern from the scripture that that means that the end is much, much closer than it always has been. No matter what people will say throughout the history of the Christian church about that, Jesus says, actually, about my return, It will come completely unexpected. In other words, life will be going on as normal. People will be getting married. People will be having jobs. People will be buying and selling. Life will go about its daily course. And then one day, suddenly, Jesus will return. It's unexpected. And the second thing that Jesus taught us about His return last week when He will put an end to the world as we know it, and bring in the glorified state, is that when He returns, it will be unmistakable. It is not something that we or the disciples would have to worry about trying to figure out and making sure that we're in the right place. Because when He comes again, it will not be like the first time, but it will be like lightning flashing in the sky when you don't have any doubt that that is lightning. And that you see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to judge the nations, to usher His people into the glorified state. It is unmistakably the return of Jesus Christ when He comes. It is unexpected. Life will be going on as usual. And having taught His disciples that, of course, thinking about that, if it's, if it's going to be unexpected and unmistakable, then that implies, right, that there's going to be a delay of time in between the time when Jesus is speaking about his return and when he actually returns. And he was even telling the disciples that, like in chapter 17, verse 22, he says to them, the time is coming, disciples, when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. And in fact, we mentioned last week that The disciples became aware that there was going to be a delay between the time that they had with Jesus and the time that he would come to bring the fullness of his kingdom. And that time in which they were waiting and had expectation is the same time in which we live today. We know that it's going to be unexpected when he comes. And we know that it's going to be unmistakable when he returns. But we're waiting like they were. We long for the day just like the disciples were longing for that day but they did not see it. So Jesus not only instructs them about His second coming and that there will be a delay and that shouldn't surprise them, but He goes on in chapter 18 and this is where we are this morning. He goes on now to prepare them to handle that delay. Prepare them for the time when He has already brought the kingdom of God into the world. He's going around healing people, raising the dead, pronouncing the forgiveness of sins, sanctifying people, calling out demons like He was doing. We have put our confidence in Him to continue to do the same and one day to glorify us completely, to wash us out of all of our uh, sins. To take that out of us fully and finally to take away all our temptations. We look forward to Him raising us and giving us the glorified body so that we'll never be uh, sick and lonely. We look forward to Him satisfying us fully and finally no more trouble in life. All of that we look forward to. But we are in this delay, aren't we? We're in between the time when He has already inaugurated His kingdom. And the time when He will bring His final kingdom in its fullness. And end this world as we know it and bring in the glory. And so we're being instructed in chapter 18 how to think about life, how to act, how to be during that time. He starts by telling a parable. And right at the beginning of chapter 18, the reason for the parable is given. He's telling his disciples this story so that during that time, that delay, they should pray and not give up. So something about what he's going to say in the parable will encourage us to continue to call on him, even though we are still waiting for him. So what's in the parable? Well, there's a widow that comes to an unjust judge, and this is an ungodly judge. Very likely, he does not care at all about justice. He does not fear God, even though he probably uses the name of God, right? To testify to his authority. And this widow is pleading with him... To render judgment in her case. And very obviously, right... This widow is probably asking for justice. She's not asking for more than she's entitled to. But what? This judge just doesn't care. Probably the resources of the widow... Are not enough to make this case... Come before the judge. It's not worth his while. Right? He would prefer to be bribed. But this lady continually bothers this judge and pleads her case before him to the point that what? Finally he says, even though I really don't care about this lady, I've got to get her off my back. And for that sake, and for that reason alone, I will give her the judgment that she is asking for. And the point that Jesus makes in this story is what? In verse 7, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? who cry out to Him day and night. In other words, when you are living in the delay between the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and His second coming, and you are discouraged because you may feel that the Lord has left you to be dissatisfied, left you to be in distress, left you without the blessings which He was beginning to display in the creation when He came the first time, when you believe, when you are facing something in your life that the Lord has abandoned you, or at least maybe this whole thing is a joke because He's not here now, what you are to call the mind is that the delay is not a testimony of God's disfavor toward you or having forgotten you. But it is a time of expectation when he absolutely will, at his return, come and glorify you. Because if an evil judge, simply for the sake of a widow's persistence and bothering, will grant her what she wants, how much more will God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has chosen you by name from before the foundation of the world, how much more will he definitely come to glorify you? How much more? The God who from all eternity chose you by name. He didn't choose everyone. By His grace, He had compassion on you. One who He brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He sent His only begotten Son into the world to live a life of persecution and die for your sins. To be raised from the dead for you. He has reached you in your lifetime by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Gospel. He has opened your blind eyes. So how much more? Will the God who cares for you more than the unjust judge who doesn't even care for the lady and still gives her what she wants, how much more will God meet you for certain with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and glorify you? You need to be in the time of this delay, in the time of your suffering, in the time of your dissatisfaction, in the time of your own struggles in life, you need to be reminded that the Lord will indeed come to glorify you. So you ought to take encouragement by that and not give up. No matter what you face in this life, I don't care how bad. And if things are going well for you right now, you need to tell yourself now that when you face trials, this is what you will need to remember. That the Lord Jesus will never forsake you and that He will return to glorify you. And the other thing that Jesus says here in this parable, look at the second part of verse 7. He says, will He keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. So he's also contrasting how God will deal with us, with this judge, and that the judge took a while, didn't he? Before he finally decided to give the widow what she was asking for. But Jesus says it's different with the return of the Lord Jesus because that will come quickly. Now, what does that make us ask? I mean, the disciples are hearing this, right? And as we know how history played out, not only did Jesus go to the cross and was separated from the disciples for a time, but then when He rose from the dead, He only spent, what, 40 days with them? And then He ascended into heaven? And then what happened? The disciples went along living out the rest of their lives, expecting, anticipating the final return and the coming in the fullness of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And did it happen? no so what are we supposed to do fast forward 2000 years later and here we are in the same position well I thought you said Jesus that you will not keep putting us off that you will see that we get justice and quickly what's the deal I mean, maybe we should just take the view of the unbelieving world, which says, yeah, see, this is your problem, Christians, because you read stuff like this and you believe it, but it doesn't happen. So, you know, you keep talking about, oh, the Lord is going to mean justice in the end, and oh, you see the signs of the times, and uh, oh, you expect that He will come quickly to deliver you, and vindicate, oh, you're right and everybody else is wrong, but, uh, you know, <laughs> hasn't happened yet. What do we do with that? Well, we need to be sensitive to how Jesus means quickly. And the apostles in their letters help us understand what Jesus means when he says, I'm coming soon. And I'm coming quickly. Of course, immediately, we think of that in terms of time. Time in the sense that we think that that means he's going to come in two or three weeks or two or three months or two or three years, right? But when the scripture talks about time in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's talking about time broken up not by seconds and minutes and weeks and months and years, but time broken up by major things that God has done in redemptive history. So for example... Father created all things out of nothing, didn't he? He then built the nations of the world. Early on, we hear that recorded in the scripture, right? And then what happened? He called Abram to be his people. He made Israel. And then he brought Israel all the way along and then sent Christ into the world. And then what happened? He sent Christ to the cross to die for our sins. And he brought Christ up from the grave. Now let me ask you a question. If world history can be tracked by the major redemptive events that that God the Father is doing in the Lord Jesus Christ, then what comes next after the resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Are there five more major redemptive historical events that we should expect before the Lord Jesus Christ returns? The answer is no. In fact, the Lord has spoken through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that we wait for now is the unexpected and the unmistakable return of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring in the glorification suddenly. And to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And to judge all of the unrighteous and the ungodly in the world. Is he going to come again meekly? Is he going to come again where he sets up this thousand year deal with this nation of Israel to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he going to show another major redemptive historical event in history before the return of the Lord Jesus? The answer is no. So when Jesus says, I'm coming quickly... When the Apostles explain what it means for Jesus to say that He is coming soon, what He means is that there is no other major redemptive historical event to expect before His return. And that He will not delay the glorification of the creation through other magnificent displays of His truth as He did through Israel and giving them the law and the sacrifices and setting the stage for the Lord Jesus. Jesus is coming soon, meaning there is nothing else to expect except his coming. We don't expect any more revelations from God, any more prophecies from God. We expect the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is coming soon. He was coming soon when he said it here. We say he's coming soon now. Why? Because he hasn't come yet. That's what it means. We are on the cusp of the fulfillment, the final fulfillment of all of biblical prophecy, of the coming in of the new heavens and the new earth. And as long as the Lord Jesus Christ is delayed in coming, that should encourage us. Because He loves us and He will not abandon us. Now look what happens in verse 8. In the middle of that verse... Jesus sort of sets aside what he talked about to that point to ask what is obviously in his mind a more important question when the people of God are considering the coming of the Son of Man. He's already said it's unexpected. He already said it's unmistakable. He said, don't lose hope. I will certainly come. And there's nothing else major to happen in redemptive history before I return. But now he says, however, and it's abrupt, right? When we read it the first time, I tell you he will see justice see that they get justice and quickly however when the son of man comes will he find faith on the earth and Jesus changes from talking about some of the characteristics of his return and some of how to deal with the delay in his return and says the question I want you to ask is who is going to receive the glorification when I come in other words, you want to know how to prepare for my coming? Well, listen, in one sense, you can't do anything to discern the time because I'm not going to show it to you. Nobody's going to know it until it happens. And you don't have to worry about finding it because everybody's going to know it when they see it. And you know what? You have to trust, you have to believe, because I love you, that I will bring it. So what I want you to think about is, are you one of the ones who can say with a certainty that when I return and bring in the glorification that you will be a part of its blessings? Will the Son of Man find faith on the earth when he returns? And keep in mind, he's speaking to his disciples, isn't he? So you know what it's like to hear this. And you might be like the disciples saying, well, Jesus, I mean, you know, we always talk about this. You always talk about making sure that I am right before you and and I know this because we followed you. and we hear this every week and Jesus I think you'll notice is going back to some of the same themes the same descriptions of us and teaching us about our own sin and teaching us about his righteousness that he gives us by his grace to remind us continually now I would just to apply this to us want to challenge you to really think about that idea Because, you know, when you read the scripture, and as we've been reading just for an example through Luke's gospel, the same thing keeps coming up over and over again, doesn't it? It's being convicted of our own sinfulness and our inability to fulfill the law of God and then being uplifted by the glorious gospel of grace and that Jesus came to live for us and to die for us. And you see Jesus, of course... Getting after the Pharisees for their own self righteousness and talking to the disciples again about remaining humble and seeing themselves as sinful and receiving his pardoning grace. And you say, all right, you know, you might be tempted to say, enough already, right? But the thing of it is, Jesus knows what his disciples continually need to hear. And Jesus knows what you need to continually hear when you come to church, because you're no different, and I'm no different, than the disciples in His day who are the sworn followers of the Lord Jesus Christ who have said, yes, I've heard this a hundred thousand times. And Jesus says, well, until I return during the delay, I'm going to tell you again. And this is the message that you will continually hear. Why? Why are we going to hear these stories again and again, explaining our sinfulness and explaining the grace? Why do we read the law in church every Sunday and confess our sins again and hear the pardon and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Aren't we tired of that? And really the answer is in the point itself. It's because we, and especially we as religious people, always are self-righteous, are prone to the kind of self-righteousness that ultimately would expose us in the last day as never really having been a Christian all along. And Jesus continues to repeat the law and the gospel, and the scripture continues to repeat the law and the gospel, and everything in the scripture is about the central message of Christ and how he has fulfilled the law for us and died for our sins over and over and over again because that's what we need to hear. and to apply it even further to our own minds. It is not hard to look around and see that in our society and in our culture, the message of the law and the gospel gets drowned out by things that are, say, maybe more perceived that we have the need to hear. You know, maybe I just grow tired of hearing the same message week after week and week, and I want to hear a message that is more relevant to some aspect of my life. Fill in the blank. And when there is application from the Scripture, unless it's the kind of application that I want to hear, I become dissatisfied with. it. As opposed to when we hear practical application of the Scripture, not conforming our, our lives and our beliefs to it. My point is this. I would be surprised if you don't hear... These parables that the Lord Jesus tells us are a bit repetitive, and I tell you that He does it on purpose. And that if we have a resistance to hearing that basic message over and over again, then we show ourselves to be the very ones who need to hear it over and over again. Because if you really believe that you're gripped by a sense of your own sinfulness, and by the extent of the mercies in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will not grow tired of hearing it, because you will recognize that all of your life is in that, and all supposed religiosity and expressing your Christianity out in the practical areas of your life which is good so far as it goes there is no power in that to find you in the glorification the power to find you in the glorification is the righteousness of God in Christ which he has given us as desperately wicked sinners this is what Jesus says again to us today To some, verse 9, who were confident of their own righteousness And looked down on everybody else He told them the parable of the two men at the temple to pray And let's put ourselves right in this parable The best way for this parable to grip us Is to describe ourselves as these people In other words, or the descriptions even of these people Look at verse 9 It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. So let me just stop there and ask, are you confident in your own righteousness? Do you think that in any way God is going to look at anything that you have done, anything that you have been, anything that you are now as a Christian person or hope to be someday, do you think that He's going to look at you and accept that because of who you are? And if you are confident in any way in your own righteousness... The glorification is not for you. And when Jesus returns, you will be dejected. How about you? Do you look down on everybody else? Do you look down on everybody else? Do you think that when you look around yourself, even in the church, forget out in the world for a minute, when you look around, do you think that you are better than other people? Really? Really? I mean, do you think because you meet certain standards and because the Lord has brought you to a certain point, birthed you into a Christian family, brought you into the Christian church, maybe fixed up your theology a little bit and now you're reformed, do you think that the Lord looks at all that and says, okay, I accept that now because you know what? You got it together unlike other people do. If you believe that, you will not be found in the glorification. You will be dejected. The Pharisee stands up, verse 11, and prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, the robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. You know what this means in modern times? That's like one of you, one of me, sitting down praying, Lord, I thank you that I am not like that homosexual lobby. I thank you that I'm not like that disgusting serial killer that I see on the news. I thank you that I'm not lost like all of those other... Weirdos. Because there's a fine line, isn't there, to look out into the world and to recognize sin and call it sin and not compromise, and yet at the same time to recognize that by nature we are no different from anybody else, anyone who is even found in the most heinous, despicable, disgusting, vile sin. And church people. Followers of Jesus will sit in the benches of a church all of their lives And think that God will accept me Because I am different than them And I want you to notice something There are people Who even believe That it's not so much that they're better than the other people But you see God has been gracious to them and that's why they're better and that's why God will accept me. The Roman Catholic Church believes this, for example. Some of you might be surprised to hear that the Roman Catholic Church believes in in a sense, total depravity. They believe that mankind is sinful. And can do nothing to get themselves right before God. But what happens is God comes to them out of his grace. It's not something that he does, but he comes to people out of his grace and he changes them and he makes them into better people. And then on the basis of how he has made them, he will justify them, he will declare them righteous, he will accept them in the glorification. Now what do we say to that? We say, well, that doesn't sound bad. And and you tell a Roman Catholic person that knows their stuff, you believe in works, and they say, We don't believe in works, we believe in grace. I am who I am, not by anything that I've done, but God worked His grace in my life. Now, what do we say? We say that God will not accept you based on who you are or who you have become, whether it's by His grace or not. Why? Because you're not perfect. And the holiest person in this life will not be accepted on their own righteousness Because they are not perfect So maybe you're somebody sitting out in the church Who thinks Okay, I, Pastor, I get that You know, I, I'm as bad as the homosexual lobby Because uh, by nature I would be the same But I'm not saying I've done it myself that I'm different I'm just saying it's God's grace that made me different And that's why He will accept me And if you believe that You won't be in the glorification either because to be accepted, you need a righteousness that is perfect. Not a righteousness that is better than a few other people. As this Pharisee would think. He's not like the outward robbers, the outward evildoers or adulterers. Or even like this tax collector. We've talked about these guys before. These traitors. And look at him. He has all the religious markings. He fasts twice a week. And he gets a tenth of all that he gets. He's doing a lot better than a lot of Christians do. Is that you? Is that you who think that you're different than others? If so, you're not going to be in the glorification. Instead, you should be described in verse 13, right? You stand at a distance. You won't even look up to heaven when you consider your own life. And I'm not just talking about where you came from. But I'm talking about today as a disciple of Jesus Christ who has a high and lofty calling who demands perfection from his people. But I'm talking about today when you consider your life, that you have the attitude toward God, not of, I'm on the inside, and it's a good thing because everybody else on the, but the, the attitude toward God that you are so ashamed, and I am so ashamed of what we have done in spite of all of our privileges, that we would not even look up to heaven, but we would beat our breasts and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I've heard people say to me, well, that's such a strong word, sinner. You know, I've, I've done some things wrong. I've sinned, maybe. I've committed some mistake, but I'm not a sinner. And if that's your mentality, you will not receive the glorification. Because it is that man, the one who has a deep, constant awareness of his own depravity. You say, Pastor, I struggle. I don't know if... I'm really saved because I look at my life and I I struggle with my own sin and my temptations overwhelm me and I tell you, there is good hope for you then, dear one. There is good hope for you, more than the one who is so confident because look at me, what I've accomplished. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. How do you view yourself? As a worm, or as somebody better than others? There's two options. One receives the glorification, the other doesn't. People are bringing babies to Jesus to have Him touch them. What's that all about? Well, it was a pattern in that day, before the Day of Atonement, that day when a sacrifice would be offered on behalf of all of the Israelite community, right, and it was representing what? The sins of that community being taken away and forgiven by the Father as He poured out His anger on the animal sacrifice. Well, the idea was that usually on the evening before the Day of Atonement, people would bring their children, their infants and their young children, to the rabbis to be blessed by them. Now, why would they do that? Well, the idea was that if the rabbi would bless the little child, then the child would receive the blessings of the sacrifice that was being made in the, on the next day. So the whole community is supposed to be represented in this sacrifice. And so children come to be blessed by the rabbi before that so that they will receive the blessings of that uh, forgiveness. Even though they have no awareness of what's going on. They don't even know that they're sinful. They're just little kids, Right? Now, of course, we should say that the church throughout its history looked at this passage and looked at the fact that Jesus did not reject the children or reject this practice of actually bringing infants who didn't know what they were doing to be appropriated into the blessings of the covenant community. He didn't reject this practice. He actually encouraged it, didn't he here? The church has used this passage as one of our defenses for the practice of infant baptism unfortunately sometimes people would press this too far this doesn't prove infant baptism any more than any other individual text but think about the idea that Jesus affirms a practice in which infants are brought in to be blessed to be incorporated in the broader blessing of the community but setting that aside it has a different meaning here for us Jesus calls in verse 16 the children and says, Let them come to me, do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. What does that mean? Remember, he's answering the question, who is going to be in the glorification? Well, you have to receive the kingdom of God like a little child to be in the glorification. What does that mean? How does a little child receive anything? Let me ask it this way. How does a child get anything that it needs? That he or she needs? Well, the answer is, the child doesn't do anything. Right? I mean, the child is at the mercy of the one who is giving the child what it needs. And if the child does not receive on the initiative of the giver, and on the actual giving of the giver himself, does not receive what the child needs, the child is not going to get what it needs. And what Jesus is saying is this. You need a perfect righteousness to stand before me in the judgment. And you are not going to do anything to get it yourself. You are merely going to passively receive it by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. And if you don't believe that, that the only way for you to be right with God is that God has come and found you and has given you His righteousness, and taken away your sins, and that's something that you didn't have anything to do with, unless that is how you understand your salvation, you will not be found in the glorification. Because if you think you had anything to do with that whole process, right? then what? Then you think you've got something that you're offering of yourself that God is going to receive, and that's the same problem as that Pharisee. It's that same problem of this certain ruler. And we'll finish with this. This ruler says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? And then he reads the commandments. And uh, Jesus is trying to draw his attention clearly to what? The idea of goodness. Because if the guy understands true goodness... Then he will be able to see that he is not good and he has to look outside of himself to find something that's good to give it to him. But he's not at that point. So how does he do this? Well, Jesus reads the commandments to him. Look at verse 21. And of course, you chuckled when you read this, right? All these I have kept since I was a boy. Okay. Maybe the guy never outwardly committed adultery Maybe he never killed anybody with his own hands. Maybe he never actually stole something from the marketplace. Maybe he ever, never got exactly caught in some kind of a lie. Maybe he always outwardly took care of his father and mother. But you know what? I guarantee you this man had a lustful thought in his heart at some point in his life. Probably a lot, if the statistics are right, about men in the world. He probably had unjust anger towards someone and called someone a name either under his breath or directly. He most likely had been lazy at some point in his life and therefore was stealing from others indirectly. He likely had twisted the truth a little bit, maybe even in his discussion with his spouse. Had he always done his utmost to honor his father and mother and all these? Of course not. Nobody has. That's the point. But he says... I have kept all these I have kept since I was a boy this man is the classic example of the self-righteous person he has not really heard the law he thinks that he's good now how does Jesus address this problem to him it's, it's interesting he says you still lack one thing sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven then come follow me Jesus does not directly tell him the law or one of the other laws that he is guilty of breaking. In this case, as we come to see, this man is guilty of idolatry. He loves his money more than he loves God. And you all know what that's like, right? So he loves his money more than he loves God. Now Jesus doesn't come out and say that to him like that. What he does is he makes him this special command and by the way this is not a universal command for all Christian people sometimes crazies read this passage and they stand up in front of Christians and say see uh, you have to sell everything and give it to the poor and it's usually the poor is like whoever's telling you to do that right and then uh, then you will have treasure in heaven that's not what he's doing he actually crafts this specific command to try and point out to this man that he is an idolater when it comes to money the man hears this command and what? Does he get it? Not really. Verse 23, he becomes sad because he was a man of great wealth. So he is saddened because in his mind, while he has kept all the other commandments, this just this one last commandment that he has to keep, he can't quite keep it. Right? meantime all along he's violating all the commandments and Jesus is trying to show him that by showing them that he loves money and you're not as good as you think you are but he goes away very sad and the point is that when the glorification comes he will be lost too not just because he loves his money and he is an adulterer and a murderer and a a thief and a liar but also because he denies that He sees himself not as bad, not as that idolater, not as one who loves money and hates God and is a sinner. And see, you are supposed to be the one. If you heard Jesus talking like this, say, you know what, you're right. I am a murderer, an adulterer, a thief, a liar, and I love money. Jesus, how hard is it says, How hard is it for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter that kingdom. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard for people to face the law of God and admit that they're really worthless and it's hard for the people of God the disciples of Jesus to sit and hear that message week by week by week even though that's what he's always talking about because fundamentally we like to be self-righteous we like to think of ourselves more highly than we ought we like not to think that the fallen race is that depraved and lost and that really our only hope is in the righteousness which broke in already and the righteousness which will be revealed at the last time and given to us But I tell you again Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled But he who humbles himself will be exalted And may God give us grace To really believe this about ourselves To hear it faithfully Until he returns And to rejoice in the power of his righteousness Of his holiness and of his precious blood Which took away all of our filth and sin In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we confess our sinfulness. We confess our utter depravity. We even confess our dissatisfaction with hearing this. We confess our impatience. All of that. And we receive the glorious righteousness that is able to bring us into the glorification again. We thank you that you see us in a way that is almost impossible for us to imagine as if we had always in our thoughts and our words and actions perfectly obeyed you just as Jesus obeyed for us. And his precious blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that we are not guilty in Him. And would we be able with that knowledge, armed with that knowledge, to endure whatever we must face until He returns to reward us for His work on our behalf. Strengthen your people in Christ's name. Amen.